You go. We're, I'm listening. All right. Well, this is our lectionary Bible study. We're, on, uh, we're in year A, and this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, let's begin with the collect. Let us pray. Stir up thy power, O Lord, and come among us, and with great might succor us, that whereas through our sins and wickedness we are sorely hindered in running the race that is set before us, thy bountiful grace and mercy may speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Amen. So this collect is basically a straightforward translation of the old Roman Missal before the prayer book. Um, so if you recall in the first prayer book, uh, Cranmer rewrote the first two collects, and then the third uh, and the fourth he just translated. And, uh, and then later, um, either 1552 or, well, no, I think 1662, um, they wrote a new collect uh, for the third Sunday, but they left the fourth Sunday the same, except that they snuck in this little running the race that is set before us. And very obviously that comes from Hebrews, uh, chapter, I think it's 12, um, the saints cheering us on in the race of life. Um, oddly, that doesn't come up in the readings anywhere uh, around here. Um, of course, Cranmer was very uh, astute in taking things referenced in the epistle or the gospel and kind of weaving them into his prayers. Uh, so here we, we're mindful of a passage that relates, that segues nicely in here, but it doesn't come from this context. But it, it goes back to that stir up. And remember that in the prayer book, the old prayer books, uh, stir up Sunday was the last one before Advent. In fact, that's a little leftover, holdover from the days early on when there was originally five Sundays in Advent rather than four. Uh, and then for whatever reason, that just kind of went away. But basically the collect and the readings are still there. Just the name changed. Um, and then in Milan and maybe in Toledo too, there's six Sundays in Advent. <clears throat> How long has it been since we've had four Sundays? Only, what, well, there's always four. four. There's always four. But what, it, five, it, it just depend on the calendar? Yeah, it's, it's always the four Sundays before Christmas. Okay. And then it can be longer or shorter depending on what day of the week Christmas yeah, comes. So this is, with Christmas being on Sunday, this is the longest it can possibly be. Right. So I think November 27th is the earliest day for the first Sunday of Advent. And the latest is December 3rd. Sunday Yeah, it's 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 labeled as the the Sunday closest to St. Andrews, but uh, basically it's that's so you get four Sundays. Yeah, I have four. The, uh, also keep in mind how the uh, content of the lectionary uh, changed. I did a video on this yesterday for the St. Francis podcast talking about the evolution. So in the old one-year lectionary. Um, the, the pattern is the first two Sundays are Apocalypse, the second two Sundays are John the Baptist material, uh, and that's it. There's no mention of the Incarnation, the kind of infancy stuff that we get uh, at Christmas time. That only comes <clears throat> in, in two places. So it comes, of course, on the Feast of the Annunciation, where we get the story nine months ahead of time that Mary conceives, and then in the Ember Days, as we are today, we get little infancy material coming in to remind us, oh, that's 
right around the corner. Um, but in the old scheme, there was nothing on a Sunday about um, the first coming, only about the second coming and the theme of kind of getting ready. But when they redid the lectionary, they made the first Sunday all about apocalypse. The middle two Sundays were John the Baptist material. And then the last Sunday is incarnational first coming material or what I'll call Pregnancy Sunday. So this is, we get different <laughs> Gospels each time, but they're all related to the pregnancy of Mary. So with that in mind, we look uh, on this go around at uh, Isaiah 7, uh, 10 through 17. And this is a very familiar passage, especially for this time of year, the prediction of the virgin birth. To lay down a little bit of the context here, what's going on and who are the people involved, uh, Father Fuller notes, <clears throat> in the original historical situation, it's described in 2 Kings 16, Syria, which is up north, has entered into a, an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the two kingdoms have, have split apart. So the Syria is in alliance with Israel against the southern kingdom of Judah, of which Ahaz is the king. And to, together they've come down with a military assault to lay siege to Jerusalem. Isaiah offers Ahaz a sign that everything eventually will work out all right. Um, but Ahaz piously refuses any such sign. Um, perhaps he's had a falling out with Isaiah, or maybe it's just a part of Ahaz's character. Ahaz is a very wicked king. Um, and, and that's something that uh, we kind of don't pay attention to. Uh, because we focus everything on this uh, prediction that, that alludes to the virgin birth. But Ahaz is a wicked king, so he refuses the sign, but Isaiah go, goes on and gives a sign anyway. And it, the young woman is not named, but uh, most likely perhaps it is the wife of the king uh, who will give birth to their son, Hezekiah, the next king. So Hezekiah is a good king, uh, the dad, Ahaz, is a bad king. And remember the sign has to do with, you know, before the, the boy can eat anything but curds and honey, you know, just kind of toddler food, he'll already know right from wrong and he'll always, already be a, a good guy, even from a very young age. And, so, and, then, and then he gives the name, uh, he will be called Emmanuel. Uh, this, this child to be born is a reminder that God is with us. Not in the incarnational sense of God come down from heaven, but rather in the political sense of God is with us, not with them. God's on our side, God will protect us. So this birth will be a sign that God is with us. Uh, let me see, anything else? Oh yes, and to, to give the, the background of the uh, uh, problematic term here, and he points out something that, that um, is important to point out, which I hadn't um, thought about really much. So, of course, the, the, the text says a, a young woman, a maiden, will conceive and give birth. Alma is the word used in Hebrew. It's used seven times in the Old Testament. Uh, it always means a young maiden, not specifically um, an unmarried virgin. That's just kind of implied. Um, However, the Septuagint, which is, of course, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, produces, produced several hundred years prior to Jesus. And he points out 
and thus has no possible Christian influence, deliberately translates uh, the Hebrew Alma into the Greek word Parthenos, uh, which is the word virgin in Greek. And so he says, the Jewish translators of the Septuagint saw a miraculous birth in Isaiah 7.14. Now I'm not sure about that conclusion, um, just simply because there is no tradition of a uh, virgin birth um, in messianic expectation. It's something that really comes to light in hindsight. So we have in the Christian era this tradition of a virgin birth and then Matthew in his gospel looks back and says, you know this happened to fulfill what Isaiah said. Because Isaiah said this young woman will conceive and the Greek is this virgin will conceive. And then he doesn't talk about it there but hey that relates back to Genesis 3.15 where God said, the seed of a woman. Women don't have seed, that's not how it works. So it's a little kind of a hint that this is a miraculous kind of birth that doesn't come through the instrumentality of a man, but directly from God. Um, and we'll look at some other notes after that. But let's look at the text itself, Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And then um, after this, uh, it goes on with some more oracles. Um, on that day, the Lord will whistle to flies at the farthest streams of the Nile and to bees in the land of Assyria, probably you know, calling on foreign assistance, foreign alliance to help you in the day of battle. All of them will come and settle in the steep ravines and the clefts of the rocks and all the thorn brushes and in all the water holes. Uh, so there's several things like that. You know, the Lord will intervene in history uh, to help you in this situation. I've forgotten a lot of the details that I used to teach, but Ephraim, who was Ephraim? So that's to the south. I mean, but I mean, oh, Ephraim is a, an area. Yeah. Okay, Ephraim departed from Judah, so Ephraim left Judah. Well, that I but, think, but it, or is Judah dash? Is this is this hyphen correct? Judah dash D. Uh, let me see. In this one, it says, um, "The Lord will bring upon you, your people, your father's house, such a time as never has been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria." Okay, so that hyphen. Okay. Really, I, I, so Judah isn't tied to the king of Assyria. That's what's no. confusing me is that it, maybe that 
Judah was a title that the king of Assyria yeah. no, had taken over from, that's not it. from the Jews when they conquered it. Okay, thank you. But it's, it's probably just relating to the shifting alliances that are taking place and that are freaking everybody out. And um, God, even though uh, Ahaz is a wicked king, and it's not a matter of his personal reward, but it's a matter of God's own goodness and his plan of salvation, his plan of how things ought to work out, uh, is going to intervene and make sure that they're spared. So by the time the child is weaned, basically, he says it's all going to be over. Um, so this child will, will not even know anything about those days. He'll just hear it in stories, you know. I always thought it was interesting that Ahaz, being the icky guy that he was, did know not to put God to the test. Like he had some amount of religion. Yeah, and I don't know if that's either reflective of his, of his pride, perhaps, or of a kind of a superstition, you know? Mm, okay. um, like I, you know, I've, I've lost all my friends so far. I don't want to lose maybe the last friend I might have, oh, yeah. uh, the friend on high. Um, and I think it's, it's good to keep in mind that Ahaz is, is a wicked king because it, it reminds us that uh, God doesn't intervene on our behalf because we deserve it. Uh, it's because God is good and he has a plan to redeem us and to take our brokenness and to restore it all. And uh, he will give us signs from time to time that these things are taking place, even when everything seems to be weird and falling apart. Uh, God is still on his throne and things are going on behind the scenes. The wheels are in motion, things are happening and so on. And it's not because we deserve it, it's because God is good. Well, let's look at, um, well, let me see, do I have any things to point out? Uh, Chris Austin says, that's always an introduction to a long drawn up. Uh, he, he's talking about the virgin birth here and relating back to this passage. Uh, he says, were she not to be a virgin, the birth would not have been a sign. So I'm not sure I, I, I agree with that. I think that anything can be a sign. If it, a sign is meant to reveal something, show you something. So I think even a natural thing can be a sign. So I'm not necessarily convinced of his argument here. But he says, a sign is something that differs from the normal way things happen. A that is out birth is not a normal... Well, I'm just saying, you know, a, a natural thing could be a sign if it's indicating that God is sending oh, okay. a okay. message. Well, I don't think he, that that is even saying that, that it can't be a natural He's just saying that if, it, if she had not been a virgin, mm -hmm. then that particular thing would not have been a sign. I, I, I had an experience with my father-in-law over this very thing, mm -hmm. where he went to a Bible study with a priest, Catholic priest, who had this whole thing about words and linguistics, and we studied Hebrew and all that kind of stuff, and said, you know, the word that they use for Mary, it doesn't mean virgin. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, we put, too, we put too much stress on that she might have been a virgin. It wasn't important that she, if she was a virgin or not. And, and when my father, I was saying, he was saying this to me, and I looked at him like, okay. yeah, uh, it's pretty important. <laughs> and I can't believe a Catholic priest would even say that. So to me, that 
it, it is important that it was a virgin birth. That is a sign. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's a good illustration of what we call uh, the difference between exegesis and eisegesis and the principles of hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is the art of interpretation. And then exegesis is taking a meaning out of a text. And eisegesis is putting a meaning into a text. And so basically it's a conclusion-driven mm -hmm. approach. So you want to say, well, Mary's not necessarily a virgin because miracles don't really happen. Uh, miracles are just things that are nice and sweet and meaningful. But uh, as far as violating the laws of nature, no, that doesn't work that way. So we must find some reason why this is not really a virgin birth. Oh, the Hebrew word right. doesn't explicitly mean virgin. It's just kind of implied. But then how do you get from here to there? Well, you got to say, well, that whole New Testament thing, well, they're just wrong. They just, you know, they don't know how to read Hebrew or they're, they're not very educated and they just use the wrong word. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit just let them use the wrong word about a very critical, important thing. <laughs> But of course, it just they didn't make it up themselves. They were just copying out of the Bible, which they had, which was the Greek translation, hundreds of years before Christians came along, when there was no Christian tradition yet about a virgin birth. But way, way back then, those scholars down in Alexandria, translating the Hebrew, who definitely knew what they were talking about, right. decided to use that explicit word, virgin. They were Jewish scholars. Though. Yeah. I mean, I'm... Would assume so. I don't think it's because God pagan scholars would be well, perfect, and everything He does is perfect. And so mm -hmm. there, there is not one word in Scripture that isn't many layers deep of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, anyway, it and, is and important those, that she was a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> and those multiple layers, um, and the the process of clarifying the meaning by moving from Hebrew to Greek brings up a situation where you can have the same words, same passage, but it has, you know, a different application. So in this passage, it could be just a normal birth. That's an indication that God is on your side and things will work out. And basically it's, it's the promise of a son, an heir, you know, basically God is saying, I'm not done with you. I know you deserve it, but because of my plan, my goodness, I'm not done with you. You're going to have an heir. He's going to be a good guy. And he's going to grow up in peace and not in a destroyed kingdom. Um, but then, you know, the, the ultimate meaning that it's related to after that is clarified when the, in the translation. Oh, it, it, it's more explicitly virgin. A virgin can, shall conceive and bear a son. His name will mean God with us in the sense of God coming down and being with us, not just God favoring us. And so all of the Messianic prophecies are working on multiple levels. Basically, all prophetic material throughout the Bible uh, usually has several layers of application, an immediate one, and sometimes even an intermediate one, and then a final ultimate application. Well, let's look at the psalm, Psalm 24. Um, the original Roman Catholic lectionary uses Psalm 24, although, of course, just a, a snippet of the verses. The uh, revised common lectionary uh, deviated <coughs> for some reason. They went over to Psalm 80. Um, and I don't know why they felt they ought to make a change. But that was the only change made in uh, the lectionary with that. So this is a psalm of David. 
it's a psalm that's um, normally applied to the ascension. Um, and so kind of an, in an odd, ironic twist, I guess you'd say, uh, a psalm that's usually sung in praise of God going up is now used in praise of God coming down. So, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and all that therein is, the compass of the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall rise up in his holy place? Even he that hath clean hands, and a pure heart, and hath not lift up his mind unto vanity, nor sworn to deceive his neighbor. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, even of them that seek thy face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Well, it continues on. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Raise up, ye ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Is that a hymn, hymn too? Yeah. Um, well, there... I'm not sure if it's a hymn, but it, it's something that we, we all know. Yeah. Uh, from repetition. If it's a psalm, there's a psalm paraphrase hymn somewhere. But it's not uh, one that I'm familiar with. That's running. It's running too. Well, if I'm asking it, it's a, it's a hymn because I'm not a singer. But almost all hymns are taken from, you yeah. know, scripture. So I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Of course, the uh, the re the mention of uh, open up your gates is really a Virgin Mary birth um, reference, and we I forget which psalm it is. But there's, an, there's another one that the church fathers always look to um, with the idea of the perpetual virginity, that um, the Lord, on, only the Lord will come through these gates, and then the gates will be closed, and no man shall go through these gates again. Um, so that's, I forget where that is. I should have made a note about that. Um, so the references to the entering the gates is always kind of an incarnational reference, birth reference. And uh, the only person who uh, is worthy to go up and enter the gates and uh, uh, through, come through the doors is the King of Glory. Well, let's look at the epistle, Romans. Remember the unique thing about Romans is, is that normally Paul is writing to churches that he started or helped start. This is a different case where he's introducing himself to a church that's already there. And he's laying out what he teaches in kind of a theological treatise. And, um, and so it basically it's like, you know, this is the gospel that I preach. If it sounds like the gospel that you've heard from the apostles who started your church, then you know that I'm legit, basically. And so this is his introduction to his introduction of himself. Oh, let me read from this translation. Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh, and designated Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one sentence. Yeah. And there's not much breathing in there. I was just um, listening yesterday to um, uh, Neshota House, the uh, music professor there, put out a little series of videos on, you know, how to chant the gospels and the epistles and stuff like that. And so he makes a reference to uh, the epistles are usually harder to do than the gospels because, first of all, all of these run-on sentences (laughs) that Paul is prone to. But, you know, we should... You know, I don't think we should blame Paul so much because bringing it into English and the translation, you can put punctuation wherever you want. I mean, you look at different translations, they're all over the place. Yeah, there was no translation. I mean, there was no punctuation. Everything just ran together. So I think this is more blameworthy for the English. And I don't know if any other languages, you know, how they handle it, but as far as the English sort of tradition of rendering things... um, because, you know, there's a lot of choice of words that could be made. And so early on, when the Bible first started to be translated into English, there was kind of a, a pattern that developed about, you know, we, we, we like this word rather than this word generally. And um, so there's kind of a history, a, a tradition of translation. So for just one example I can think of is that, generally speaking, they decided to use the, the word saint for New Testament words but not for Old Testament words. So for the Old Testament, if that term for holy one comes up, they would say it like God's holy ones. And then in the New Testament, they could have just said God's holy ones, but they decided to use the word saint because that was sort of the Christian term. Um, so it's just a matter of choice of words and kind of a pattern of speech and, and so on that developed into a tradition. That's To me, that's what's so interesting and intriguing and re- refreshing on one level about reading the New Jerusalem Bible is because it circumvents the English trans- history and pattern of translation. So it was a French translation and then the first iteration was from French to English and then somebody was like, you know, we ought to back- go back and look at the original. <laughs> and so the New Jerusalem Bible is going back and looking at the original and you know tweaking things that ought to be tweaked but because they circumvented the english pattern it has this kind of different turns of phrases and so it's like it's the same stuff but it's like reading it for the first time in a, in a way that doesn't strike you as sort of low class like some of the more modern language paraphrases and stuff like that yeah yeah it yeah it doesn't have that dumbed down kind of feel to it 
It sounds like it's somebody telling you the story firsthand, almost. Is it worth buying? Because I have an old Jerusalem yeah. Bible. Yeah, I think, well, as far as how much is different between the old and the new, I, I don't know. You know I, I wouldn't think it's a whole lot. Did it have all the footnotes? Yeah, in fact, it's kind of famous for its notes. It has very scholarly notes in it. Um, things to point out about the epistle um, is how uh, Paul makes reference to the Davidic ancestry of David. Of course, that's a big messianic thing. And part of the preaching of the early church is, especially at the beginning to a Jew Jewish audience, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the one promised in the scriptures. Of course, there is no New Testament at that time, so the scriptures are only the Old Testament. Um, so he is the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies. He is the heir to David's throne. Um, he is the one we've been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of God's promises and so on. Um, Father Fuller in his notes says, Jesus himself had not called particular attention to his Davidic descent. That would have suggested to his contemporaries a political conception of messiahship. Which, we, which he was at pains to dis, disassociate himself from. But the post-Easter community found it necessary in preaching to Israel to stress Jesus' Davidic descent as a vital qualification for his messiahship. So during his ministry, people always had kind of the wrong conception about um, the idea that he was the messiah, so he didn't play up that kingship stuff a lot. Uh, he talked about other things. But, of course, after that, the preaching of Jesus... Um, after the resurrection and ascension, um, you had to sort of start with the idea that Jesus is the son of David, the heir to the throne, because that's the, what, what the Messiah is. You, you, you can't bypass that. Um, here he says, um, descended from David according to the flesh, so he's the legitimate heir, and then on the other side from heaven, designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, and that was manifested to the world, testified to by the miracle of the resurrection from the dead. So that authenticated his identity as being both the Messiah and also uh, the divine Messiah, the Son of God. I thought I should take a moment to kind of walk you through before we get into the gospel. Um, this is called the an Introduction to the New Testament by Raymond Brown, one of the premier uh, New Testament scholars um, in the latter half of the 20th century. And uh, here he has a nice, um, very systematic, almost like a notebook, um, analysis of all the writings of the New Testament and uh, sort of the key themes and um, issues involved in translation and interpretation, all that kind of stuff. So for each section, he has kind of a little appendix, uh, issues and problems uh, for reflection. And so in Matthew, um, he has a segment on the infancy narrative and all of the sort of challenges that people have come up with. And, and, he, and, he, and he kind of puts his critiques and responses to those things um, in little parentheses as we go along here. So I'll, I'll indicate him responding to those things. So he says, Matthew 1, 16, 18 through 25 clearly describes a virginal conception of Jesus. So, you know, some may argue, of course, that he's not really conceived of a virgin, 
but we should start from the obvious fact that this is describing a virgin, virginal conception. And when we say virgin birth, what we're really talking about is the conception, uh, not as much the birth. Although Matthew's interest in is theological, that Jesus is truly God's son, there's no reason to think that the evangelist disbelieved the historicity of this conception. Modern scholars, however, are divided. On the one hand, many do disbelieve, advancing various arguments that I report as follows. A, such miracle is impossible. And he says, how does one know that? And I would say, that's what a miracle is. <laughs> you say that a miracle is impossible, you're like, oh, you understand what a miracle is. So, I like this guy already. Well, no, that's, that's my thing. Oh. He, he, he just says, how does one know? Um, and I'm not sure exactly what he means there. I, I guess, how does he know that it's a miracle? But that, that didn't seem to make sense to me. Anyway. Isn't, isn't it St. Paul who says, with God, all things are possible? Like, you well, no, that's uh, the angel Gabriel. Okay, you can't limit God in any way. Yeah. Uh, B, um, this is the obje objections from uh, skeptics. This is simply an imaginative account based on the Septuagint of uh, Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, which Matthew cites. So I, I guess the, the, the critique is, oh, it's just an exaggeration. He's taking this Greek version and playing it up. And he points out there was no Jewish tradition about the Messiah will be a virginal conception. Uh, that just doesn't really show up on the radar. C, this is a Christian adaptation of pagan legends in which a god's seed begets a child of a woman. And then Brown responds, there are not virginal conceptions, or those are not virginal conceptions, but rather divine matings. So, you know, Zeus comes down and has sex with somebody, and that, that's how you get uh, Hercules and so on. Um, and he says, Matthew almost certainly arose in Jewish Christian circles, which are not likely to have appreciated such alien legends. D, the Matthean evangelist writes symbolically, even as did Philo, the Jewish philosopher, who described allegorically the birth of the patriarchs. Uh, and he responds, Philo is describing virtues, not the real birth of real people. Uh, e, it is a pious Christian attempt to disguise the fact that Mary was raped and Jesus was illegitimate. What? Who are oh. these people? Oh, they're out there. They're all over the place. Um, John Dominic Crossan. Do they call themselves theologians? Or oh, yeah. They? Well, if they're part of the Jesus Seminar, that's generally the, the lot we're talking about. Why, why would Christians? you just be something else? Yeah, just, I know. You know. It's like you're in the wrong business. Yeah. It's but. like a priest who doesn't believe in the real presence. I just want to say, well, be something else now. Go be a greeter at Walmart, because <laughs> you know what? You're in the yeah. I don't get it. Well, I don't either. I don't get why they need to tear it down. You well, know? they're postmodernists. That's basically the the whole task of the whole enterprise. So Brown responds, basically, there's no evidence for this. It's just speculation. It's only guesswork. Well, that all started back in Germany, back in the 1800s. You know what? I, here's what I have wondered 
about these people that have to tear it down is that they they feel somehow threatened mm -hmm. by by the fact that there's something really big, bigger, and miraculous, and so they have they to they have to minimize it somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't get it. And then Brown has another paragraph, basically, it's sort of like Aquinas and the Summa, you know, laying out the objections first, and then I reply that. And he says, on the other hand, there are serious scholars who do believe in the literal historicity of the virginal conception. And then he lays out a couple of points. A, independently, it's affirmed by both Matthew and Luke, which suggests a tradition earlier than either evangelist. In other words, they didn't make it up because we see it in different places uh, that aren't connected. So we know that Matthew didn't copy from Luke and Luke didn't copy from Matthew. Those are independent. Uh, B, in both Gospels, the virginal conception is situated in an awkward circumstance. Mary becomes pregnant before she goes to live with Joseph, to whom she's been married, an unlikely invention by Christians, since it could lead to scandal. So that's a good point. Is that you, basically, you don't make up embarrassing things. <laughs> Things that are awkward, and you have to like sit down and explain. And, and the you whole know. Bible is full of, of things that are embarrassing. Yeah. Like if we really had something, if we really wrote it ourselves, we would leave all this. It doesn't cover up. It doesn't cover up the crimes of the right. major players. Yeah. Uh, C, just as indicated, the non-historical explanations are very weak. And then, uh, lastly, there's theological. Uh, support for the idea of the virginal conception. So in other words, it falls in line with the other messages and, and details that we find throughout the rest of the New Testament. Well, let's turn to the Gospel. So in the four Gospels, we have two of them that have uh, infancy stuff. The other two don't. So Mark and John, they start with John the Baptist out there preaching in the wilderness. But uh, Matthew and, and Luke um, have earlier material. So Matthew starts with a genealogy, and then uh, Luke starts. Luke also has a genealogy, but it's tucked in a little bit later. Uh, and Luke also has a lot more material. So he talks about um, Gabriel going to visit uh, Zechariah and uh, talking about the birth of John the Baptist. And uh, we get more about the... Uh, Gabriel coming to visit Mary and so on. The, the Matthew material is very short. Because so Luke lived with her. Yeah, so, and, and Luke tells us in the beginning, it's like, you know, I wanted to kind of get to the bottom of these things and get more questions answered, and I went back and did my research and talked to original eyewitnesses and so on. And, and a lot of people think that the whole tradition about him painting a portrait of Mary is really... Uh, an analogy of him writing the gospel, painting the picture of Mary in words. Um, I, you know, that um, I just heard a story about that. That he he, uh, what is it called when you do an icon? Paint. No, you don't. Paint. No, Draw. You don't, you, no, no, they say write an icon, you, but you it's write stupid. He wrote the first icon. Yeah. And uh, there's a place in Israel that claims that. So he's considered, you know, the, the father of icons or whatever. 
That reminds me, I do need to rewrite my garage door. To rewrite your garage door. Yeah. Because the paint has worn on it. Oh, Father, come on. That's why you shouldn't use the word write for painting icons. It's paint, brush. Anyway, so Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and this is nestled in between um, the uh, genealogy and the wise men coming to visit in chapter 2. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And after her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had borne a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, a nice little tightly packaged narration of um, the virginal conception. And, uh, so the shepherds, I think, are in Luke. Um, yeah, I don't see anything about the shepherds here. Uh, it just go goes on with the wise men. Chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that it kind of just bumps right over Christmas Day without very much at all. And it might be kind of his style, his approach to things that are very sort of holy, and you might say part of the, the private life of the Holy Family. So with the conception, he says, um, you know, it, it had been found out that Mary was pregnant, but it doesn't talk about, you know, the angel visit and all that kind of stuff and her response. And it just says, you know, people found out that it happened. And then when he gets to the birth, it says, well, Jesus was born, and then wise men showed up in Jerusalem um, asking about it after that. So th that might be just a part of his approach to things and his style. I, I wonder if, if that might hold up in looking at other things um, in other parts of his gospel. I never really thought about that before. Well, let me bring out uh, our trivia piece for today. Um, this song gets a lot of heat and I don't think it deserves it. Is it's psalm or song? Song. Psalm. Which is what a psalm is, psalm. but yeah. yeah. But it's contemporary. So this is Mary Did You Know. I love that song. I like it. I it's think one it's of good. My favorite songs. And it's got a nice tune, you know. And the and words. Of course it's sappy. I get that. I understand. I know people don't some people don't like that. Oh. But I think it's it's clever and also it, it it's meant to pick up and illustrate these different truths about 
who Jesus is. If you listen to the pentatonics version of it, it's so exquisite. And of course, the whole thing is a rhetorical question. And I think a lot of people just don't get that. (laughs) And like any good rhetorical question, it deserves a rhetorical answer. And the rhetorical answer is yes. But maybe not all the details. You know, and it's kind of, that's a whole sort of a wonderful mystery here. You know, you, you can know an essential truth but you don't know all of the outflowering of it and, and all the details that, that will come from this. You just know uh, that it's, it's coming and it's, it's wonderful, you know, and, and you look forward to it. Um, so, it's, Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. So a little, little play on words. Um, a lot of Catholics shoot this down and say, well, that doesn't affirm the Immaculate Conception. I would say, well, it doesn't necessarily contradict it either because, okay, he will deliver you after this. I get that, but, but how does he deliver you? He delivers you by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. That's yet to come. So he will deliver you in the sense that, you know, he's already delivered other people that came before like Abraham and and Adam and so on. Um, you could tweak it if you want to make it sort of comply more and fit the, the meter. Or you could this just child relax. that you delivered truly <laughs> delivered you. Yeah, you could just chill out and not yes. worry about it. And then... Um, Have you ever heard this? Hmm? Have you ever heard this? I, a long time ago, I... Let not, him keep going. We're going to listen to it. Did you want to sing it for us? You say the words and then we're going to listen to it. Okay. So, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm the storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God. And then there's a chorus, did you know, did you know, did you know? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? That sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. I just find that so lovely. Yeah. I find it beautiful. Well, I think it's beautiful, but I've never heard it before. Oh, well, where do you sing it? Well, you apparently don't listen to contemporary Christian radio. Well, no, that's exactly right. They
They they are their own instrument. There's no instrument with this group. Is this person here? Huh? No. Oh. That's beautiful. Where? I'm gonna have an electric playlist tomorrow morning. What? I'm gonna have an electric playlist. <laughs> yeah. Can she play it? from Arlington. Really? Mm -hmm. Pentatonics. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. And if you just, I just, the song makes me cry every time oh, I hear it. How, how, how did you load it up? Did that mean you so fast? You do? Yeah, she's so clever. <laughs> she's got it on her phone. Yeah, I, I just, if you Google, if you Google Mary, if you say to Alexa, play, Mary, did you know by pentatonics? Because there are other versions. It'll happen. And but honestly, I would go to YouTube and watch it because there's the way they their group has no instruments, and so just watching them. How many of them are there? There's five. Five. I think. Yeah. Oh well. Penta. Pentatonics, and so everything you hear in the background is them. You know, if it's percussion or whatever, it's their voices. Excellent. Yeah. Sorry. No, it's a, there's another version I like. I can't remember the guy's name, but he's uh, an acoustic acapella singer. And he does, uh, isn't the only one, but he does songs that he sings with himself. So he records oh, him doing yeah. one part and they sync it with him yeah. doing the other part and then all together. It's kind of neat. So to point out a few things, of course, the, the major thrust of the point in telling the story is um, that it's an affirmation that this is a transcendental, transcendental origin story for Jesus. So we get a lot of, you know, in all the heroes in the Bible and also ancient literature and mythology, there's kind of a um, miraculous uh, special birth or something about it that signifies it's uh, unique, um, like uh, Hannah uh, being childless and praying for a lot, a lot of childless women giving birth to children throughout the Old Testament, Moses being uh, kind of miraculously spared, you know, through the ironic, uh, you know, you're going to throw the babies in the Nile, okay, I'll throw my baby in the Nile in a little boat, you know. <laughs> but here we have um, that kind of dramatic origin story uh, used as an affirmation of a um, divine origin. So uh, Father Fuller in his notes says, he's not the product of human evolution, the highest achievement of humanity, uh, but the intervention of the transcendent God in human history from outside. And then he quotes his, his professor that he learned from, that he loved, Edwin Hoskins, the incarnation is like a dagger thrust into the weft of human history. Into the what? Weft. 
I guess that's kind of a British oh, thing. The weaving. It's, it's a, a weaving term. term. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. The warp and the weft. Everybody knows the warp and the weft. No, they don't. Everybody knows that they just don't know what it is. <laughs> um, I like that word. And then, of course, interestingly, in comparison with Luke, uh, where it's kind of all about Mary, here it's all about Joseph, mostly the bulk of this yeah, story. Yeah, so, you know, this whole pregnancy thing is found out. Um, Joseph finds out, not directly from um, God at first, and it doesn't sound like directly from Mary at first, but sounds like from other people. I don't think it explicitly says, let me see. When his mother had been betrothed, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So it doesn't really say directly one way or the other how he found out, but it kind of gives the impression that this has taken him off guard because he's not sure how to handle this. He's, he seems surprised. Uh, you know, I thought this was a very holy person, a nice girl. Uh, what's going on here? Village um, gossip. And it points, it introduces Joseph uh, by saying uh, he's a just man. So that, that is not just to say he's a good guy, but that he follows the law of Moses, that he's devout, that he doesn't, you know, take action without thinking about right and wrong and asking what God would give him in terms of wisdom and direction about this thing. So it makes sense that he would, this would be heavy on, on his heart and he would be praying about it, asking for an answer, what should I do? Um, the, the most direct, obvious sort of delicate political way to handle this is that he cares about her. He doesn't want her to be subject to being, you know, stoned by a mob or something like that, seeking um, rough justice uh, because, you know, you could have a capital offense with um, adultery under the law of Moses, uh, but he wants to let her go and spare her, basically. Um, but he's not sure what to do. So as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And all of the direction and encounter that Joseph gets is in dreams. So the, in dreams, he'll get a message, go down to Egypt, get out of here, Herod's looking for the child, he's in danger. And then when it's time to go back, again, a dream, he follows the direction from God in the dream and brings them back uh, to the Holy Land. And the message is that this uh, Mary, who is your wife, it, there's a confusion of kind of terms for us because we don't really do this thing again. They're quite this way, but they are betrothed. They haven't come together as husband and wife, but in a legal sense, they are husband and wife. You know, they, they're exclusive now. Uh, they, you know, once you're betrothed, you can't go marry somebody else. You're already locked in. Um, you just haven't come together as a family. Um, which is what what the wedding, uh, that that's the occasion of that. That was one of the charges against uh, Anne Boland that she had been secretly betrothed to the Duke of. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. So that invalidated her so, Henry so marriage, or something. She had married Henry 
you know, when she couldn't. Because oh, she while was she already, was betrothed. Because she was, already, she was already betrothed. And if you pay attention to the wedding rite in the prayer book, there's the betrothal is still there. It's the, it's the part at the beginning. Because it almost sounds like they're getting married twice. You know, the, these familiar words come along twice. Well, the first one is the betrothal, so it's called the Declaration of Consent. You know, will you have this man to be your husband, that kind of thing. And then the other one is um, more of an active, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife. Um, let's see, anything else to point out? Oh, he's given the name of the child. You shall call his name Jesus. And there's kind of a, a parallel with uh, Gabriel's visit to... Zechariah. Uh, so the father there, I suppose, has the right of naming or something like that. So that's why the name is given to the father, so he will bestow that name. Interestingly, it's not Emmanuel. It is Jesus. Both of them kind of play off each other. So Emmanuel means God is with us, and then Jesus means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Uh, so the God who is with us is Yahweh who saves us. So it's kind of like uh, fulling out um, the, the meaning of his identity. And in fact, that's how it's laid out in the sentence. You, you, shall name his you, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew in his traditional form says, This happened to fulfill what, took what the prophet said, who said a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and so on. And then when he woke up from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. And he took his wife, uh, but knew her not until she had borne a son, and they did call his name Jesus. This is dumb, but I, when I sew, I stream some show. And I've tried several times, to, and I can't really pay attention to it 100% because I'm sewing. And I, so when I work, I'm always watching something that I either have seen before or don't care if I pay attention. So I've tried to watch The Chosen uh, a few times, and I just find it very poorly written, and sort of, it makes, it, it gets on my nerves. And so I thought, you know what? I'll watch it while I sew, right? Because I can just have it running in the background. Mm -hmm. And and so at some point, I'm in season one, and at some point he He's there, and he says, somebody says, oh, what is your name? And he says, oh, my, my name is Jesus. And I thought, people actually met him and, you know, and called him Jesus. That was, it just made me, anyway. It was a little, said, little moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll leave it at that. His name is.